Hi, just a quick announcement before we get started. If you want to see show notes for this episode that includes videos and links to information about the songs and other things that we talk about, that's available at artisticactivism.org. Then click on podcast and look for the Billboard Hot 100 episode. All right, welcome to the Center for Artistic Activism's Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions. I just nailed that. (laughs) All right, um, today we are going to be talking about music. We have a special guest here, but first, Pat, how are you? I am happy to be here getting over stomach virus and travel, but excited to listen to music and talk about it. Cool. Were those, Steve. were those two connected, the stomach? Cramps? No, they weren't connected. <laughs> but thank you for that. No, I got this stomach virus in New York City. Okay, homegrown. Um, hi, all. I'm Steve, and we have a, a great special guest here. Um, his name is Max Tremblay. Welcome, Max. Hello, everybody. And I'll tell you a little bit about Max. Actually, uh, Max is a is a, a PhD student in philosophy. And before you actually leave um, at this moment, <laughs> he's actually got this other side, which is he's a musician. Um, in fact, not just a musician, but also a scholar of music. Max and I uh, were co-editors on a book about punk rock and race called White Riot. But more importantly, Max is a drummer for a really kicking punk rock band. And so <laughs> when, when I knew we were going to talk about music, I was like, we've got to invite Max. Um, and so Max, ha- what is the name of your band? Uh, my yeah. band is called Sleepies. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. And you got it. Like the mattress company. Yes, yes. But plural, <laughs> but plural, so we don't get sued. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, we figured we'd invite Max because, you know, Max really has his ear to the underground. Max knows, like, uh, the best sort of underground uh, hip-hop music, what's happening in, you know, dance music. He knows what's happening in the punk and indie scene. And so we said, Max, just put together five songs that you think actually are going to be really worth talking about, um, that are really going to get us close to what's really happening out there. And so, Max, what have you brought us? Well, after uh, extensive archival research and going on, the, you know, the the blogs that encode rare vinyl into MP3s and that kind of thing, um, I decided I'm going to take you all through the uh, past six months of the Billboard Hot 100. Whoa, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's not scientific, but if you look at the uh, Billboard Hot 100, the top five or top ten over the past six months. Um, there have been a few songs that have dominated. Some have been number one for a while, some longer than others. Some have still just sort of clung on to the bottom of the top five. But uh, really the past six months have been about these five songs in particular. And they were even, the five of them were numbers one through five on February 14th and February 21st. For two weeks, this was the Billboard top five, the five biggest songs in the country. This makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I I don't pay attention to pop music, and I used to work at a like non commercial community radio station that prided itself on what we would we said we played the other ninety eight percent of music that existed in the world, mm-hmm. and Whoa. it totally changed my listening habits. Yeah, but for the purposes of this show, it's perfect because really what this show is about is not finding those obscure things which are only on vinyl. And by the way, Max recorded an album on vinyl in 2013. I just want to point that out. 
<laughs> we're doing our part, you know. <laughs> but what we're into here is we're actually look interested in popular culture because the idea here is within popular culture, we can actually get sort of a bead on those desires and those dreams and those fantasies, which then we as activists can actually work with in making an activism which is more popular, resonates with more people, yet actually moves away from the messages of commercial culture and more towards the messages that we want to press, which are about things like justice, things like, you know, overturning the government, things like making this world a better place. Um, and and I, I just want to flag for a moment that I put this together in a very particular way because we're in what people are calling a kind of poptimist moment, right? Where, where, uh, where never heard this. I'm judging by your faces that you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, so that's a, it's a term in kind of alternative music criticism right now for, for, for people, uh, sort of taking more seriously and cheerleading for pop records. Um, and it ends up that alternative outlets like Pitchfork actually give really, really good and serious reviews to people like Beyonce and Rihanna and that kind of a thing, or Kanye West, for instance. And it would have been really easy for me to bring, you know, uh, very, very well-reviewed, very popular stuff. But I tried to make an effort to bring at least to, to, to make it a challenge for me to make it a challenge for all of us and bring stuff that they haven't even touched necessarily in a lot of ways. And I am really curious to hear what your top five are going to be and whether or not I know any of these songs. And I could say for me, uh, music is the one area where I'm not as connected. Like I'll follow mm-hmm. the top um, for movies mm-hmm. and for television, but music I connect only through friends and references now. So I don't, I remember the days of Casey Kasem and <laughs> listening to the Billboard Top 100 every weekend. Um, but I'm really curious because I dropped outside of that world in a way that I haven't in other uh, pop culture venues. I am so out of it. Like I Last night, we decided to go to a bar we hadn't gone to before in our town and um, went a little bit too late. And it was full of people that were younger than me. And there was the kitchen was closed. I was like, oh, this is a mistake. But the main thing that signaled it was a mistake was they were blasting this song that goes like, da-na-na-na-na-na-na. I don't care. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know uh, I've heard it before. <laughs> and uh, like I've heard it in stores mainly, or I hear it on TV. I don't know who it is. I just know that that's a song. And when, I was, when that was <laughs> blasting, I was like, this is not the place for me. Let's go. And we left. And we went somewhere else to eat. And, of course, this is the problem, which is is that, you know, we all have our own personal idiosyncratic tastes. And that's actually perfect. I want to listen to music I actually like. But it's really important to figure out what, why a song whose chorus is, I don't care, is really popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And it's also interesting that you all kind of raised this. Music is one of the easiest things to feel out of touch about, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people... Um, they still follow the sort of mainstream television shows, even if they've tapped out a little bit. They still follow the mainstream movies, even if they've tapped out a little bit. Whereas music, I mean, even somebody like me who follows follows popular music, like people like Beyonce and Kanye West, there's things on here that I hadn't heard, even though they'd been the biggest songs in the country for six months, right? So um, what's what's first on the list? First is the is is the omnipresent. It might as well be air at this point. Uh, Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson, featuring Bruno Mars. Um, it's been, it was number one for, I believe, 15 weeks. Um, so a very, very long time. Almost broke the record uh, set by um, Mariah Carey and Boys to Men back in 1995. That's still the longest running uh, number one song in the Billboard Hot 100. But uh, this one came close, and it's Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson. Dope. <laughs> 
Included a keytar. Mm-hmm. Like everything, everything is coming back. They got you the, gotta have it. The limo is from the '80s. They got a keytar. They got <laughs> Miami Vice clothes. Man. Awesome. But it rocks. It just <laughs> it like makes white boys want to move. I mean, <laughs> so this has been number one for like setting records as number one mm-hmm. for 15 weeks. Yeah. And can we get a definition for what is what makes something a Billboard 100 right now? It's a lot more nebulous now, I think, uh, because it used to just be however much the record company paid the radio DJs to play the song. Uh, but now it's it's a, it's a combination of radio play and individual digital download sales and also uh, streams from Spotify and YouTube. We actually probably just gave them a little help right there by playing it on YouTube. <laughs> so one of the things that, you know, I was kidding about – no, I wasn't kidding about that – idea that just makes white boys want to dance um it 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 is infectious it is just hard not to move there's something undeniable about it it's 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 uh it's impossible to resist even though it's something that's been in the kind of fabric in the background of at least you know every every store i go into for the past six months it's 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 uh it's 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 impossible not to not to be kind of shook by it in a way and it also has that mass appeal, right? So it was reminiscent of like Prince and a Revolution, James Brown. So you can pull in people from different age groups, but it's also new sounding enough that young people are just like, okay, this doesn't feel like anything I've heard before. Uh, so it has that kind of authenticity to it. Um, so I, I loved listening uh, to that. And I would say the other thing is I made a point of not looking at the video. I noticed. Um, because for me, it's I need to hear a song first and I don't want to be influenced by uh, the visual. And I really want to just listen to the music. I mean, in this case, I, mean, I think that's a great strategy. In this case, though, I think the... the the song and the visual really do go hand in hand and complement each other so well because it, the the sound of it is exactly that sound of of kind of you know of white lines and of uh, of of Sugar Hill Gang's Apache that that kind mm-hmm. of nineteen eighties sort of cheap looking luxury kind of stuff with the big suits and the limousine as Steve said from nineteen eighty and that kind of thing and even I I I I love the shot of the uh, of all of them in their kind of very very done up gear playing like dominoes on the stoop for example you know that like that's something that that is a uh, that that fits into this image of luxury or something mm-hmm. like that and everything is like super clean mm-hmm. the clothes are super clean the limb everything's perfect including new york city in the background <laughs> is clean yes i saw not one piece of trash yeah yeah everything is and then and then of course the sound the production is perfect and they had things which just were really about that reminiscent of the 80s and even earlier uh funk and so, I mean, the thumb popping at the mm. end. You just, I just, I knew it was going to happen. I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I knew they were going to bring in the thumb popping bass at a certain point because it had to be in there. Yeah, that hasn't had a resurgence since like the mid '90s. I yeah. think that's been not cool as a bass player. <laughs> I've noticed this. The two things that I noticed: one was call and response. 
is that the call and the response is up there really early on, and it gets that feeling of like, this isn't just one person, this is a band, okay? Yes, I, I was writing my notes, and that was the whole thing for me was the full orchestra, right? The sense that you had a lot of people involved in this. Um, and it was that underlying, you know, messages of even uptown funk. They're not going to get it, right? It's the downtown. It's where it's cool. It's where it's happening. It's making that separation and that delineation, especially in New York. Uh, uptown is not cool. Uh, downtown is. Well, except that... I I was reading the Uptown as this is about being black. This is about being non-white, not downtown. So am I am I misreading that, or how did how did you read that? That is interesting, right? Because uh, Harlem is Uptown, but was never when I was growing up here. We didn't consider Harlem Uptown. It was just Harlem, and so Uptown was like the Upper East Side, right? And not which is not cool anyway <laughs> in any era. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Harlem would be called Harlem, yeah, yeah. Uh, and not necessarily uptown, even though physically it, it is, is uptown. uptown. I also, this is something that comes from my own personal experiences of having a 10 and 11-year-old boy who repeatedly sing this song. But you can imagine what they sing when they say, you know, uh, uptown's going to funk you up. They basically use it to say, it's going to f*** you up. And it's like a very legitimate way for them to slip from funk to f- um, and they they love it, and they love it, and I think there's something going on there too. It's like it's almost naughty, but it actually can still be played on the radio. It it has an interesting relationship too to things that are also kind of popular in culture right now. Things like the Wolf of Wall Street too, right? Which is so much about that kind of 1980s image of luxury and decadence. And this is very much taking off of those kinds of things, but in a very I don't want to say sanitized because that sounds like it has a negative connotation, but in a in, in a slightly safer kind of way. It's funk, not. F- you're saying, you know. And I think that actually, that makes sense in the sort of uptown. It's not uptown Harlem or Spanish Harlem. It's not even uptown Upper East Side. It's just uptown. It doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is it's just, it's just, it's some sort of place on a map that's someplace other. Um, even though it, the video is in New York, it's not New York. It can be transferred pretty much any place. And also thinking about, you know, this funk being something that is polished, right? The juxtaposition, whereas in uh, especially African-American culture, like being funky is actually something that you dress up for. You put your best suits on, you put your best dress on, you know, you go out to party. It's not about, you know, uh, dressing down. It's not about debasing yourself or your image. It's funk, but it's, you know, it's respect. You guys have probably all seen Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie. Mm-hmm. One of the scenes that always stuck with me from the, you know, when I saw it in the theater uh, however many years ago, there's a scene where they're all wearing their suits and they march up in order and turn and face some building. I don't remember all the plot points, but like Malcolm X has organized these troops and then they, they, they just stand in order. And then when he tells them to leave, they all turn all at once and march out. And it's like chilling, you know? And I think there's something about the coordinated dance moves that is awesome to see. It's just impressive because it implies like these people are all on the same page and plan this out. But also you want to be you want to do it. I want to be in the crowd doing all those moves. And and with the kind of dance they're doing, you probably could. We all probably could. It's not it's it's. It looks harder because they're so in sync, but it's actually really, really simple. It's just a little shimmy, the little, little shimmy that I think we all could do. And a lot of video editing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so should we do the next one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's sure do it. Right. So coming up now is uh, 
by popular demand, Taylor Swift. Uh, the song is called Whoa. Blank Space, and it goes like this. Drama. <laughs> is that whole that whole song is a threat? It's well. What's awesome about that song is it inverts romance novels. Oh, because she becomes the the barbarian. Yeah, I mean the whole romance novel sort of trope is it's like okay, there is a pirate, and the pirate is is full of passion and he's a bad boy, and the song starts out that way, right? And it's like oh, lovers gonna, love's going to conquer him, and so on. And by the middle of it, and this is sort of the brilliance of her, she flips it on its head, and she becomes the sort of you know the the, the powder keg. Um, and the person who's actually just full of passion and is actually going to, you know, explode the romance. But at the same time, also, that I think that there's another kind of gender flipping happening there, especially in the bridge where she says, boys only want love if it's torture, right? So she's casting the male partner in the relationship as the drama queen. And, and in a way, this whole vision of her as the powder keg is itself a kind of fiction of boys wanting that drama in a way. And again, I wasn't watching the video, but listening to the song. And my first comment was, okay, where's the country? Because this is actually my first time listening to Taylor Swift. Um, and then listening to the lyrics, I was like, oh, so she has the country themes of despair and bad relationships and and the drama, as you call it, uh, within a pop tune. So, that, yeah, that was interesting for me, that kind of um, that flip of it. So... I usually don't listen to lyrics. You know, I, I, I could listen to a song for years and not know what it's about because that's just not <laughs> what I tune into. And so you guys were talking about the lyrics in the last one, which I completely missed. So this time I'm like, all right, I'm paying attention to the lyrics. And yeah, there's these stories and drama and stuff. But also, it's this is for young girls, right? That's the so. audience, I, I think right? So, yeah, or thirty year old men. I don't know. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, don't you seem fine? <laughs> but but she's totally she's she's really talking to that audience um, and telling them a story that they can relate to because all this all their experiences of like romance and relationships in middle school are usually fraught mm-hmm. with the drama, but also this kind of power and threats and um, you know I don't know I think there's also like a nice permission to misbehave like as long as I warn you that I'm crazy I can do whatever I want which is feels really good well also right this song I mean it's not original this song as you say has been sung to every generation of young girls and 30 year old men throughout (laughs) pop history and it didn't even need to be Taylor Swift to sing this you could have plugged in you know, any number of uh, female uh, vocalists to sing this song. Uh, So in that way, it was, I think that is where we get tripped up as activists um, by being confused by the tropes 
mm-hmm. of pop music and not really going that level deeper mm-hmm. to understand why are these themes repeated? Why are these the fairy tales, you know, of our, you know, of our modern times? Um, and what can we pick out of it? And it's kind of empowering, right? Wouldn't you say that this would be empowering to a young teenage girl that feels like she's been wronged in the relationship with the other 12-year-old that she's she's dating in middle school? Well, I want to ask the only female <laughs> at the table, um, what, what, what is it about that 14-year-old, 13-year-old girl that this speaks to? I would say, <laughs> now that puts me in a tough position I, I, to speak for all 14-year-old <laughs> girls since it was such a long time, right? So my generation was... It wasn't that long. <laughs> you know, it was girls just want to have fun, right? It yeah, was Cindy yeah. Lauper. Yeah. That touched into a generation. It, it also <laughs> resonated with an older generation who were, you know, just becoming, you know, pushing into the work world and trying to carve out an identity um, for being taken seriously and also uh, the funness. But I remember... Remember, as a teenager, those songs, right? Because it's, I think it's a hype for everyone, but I think particularly uh, to the extent that you're in the other, whether you, you know, that's because you're young woman, uh, black, Latino, whatever, it's uh, having any mention of you and your story. Mm-hmm. matters and it doesn't you're not going to decipher all the right you're not going to decipher all the lyrics it's just like oh someone's speaking to me because overwhelmingly the world is not speaking to you or about you so you just grab on to whatever is there one of the things for me growing up it was it was punk rock and what it did is it legitimated my anger and I think one of the things that I got of this is it's telling girls it's all right to be really pissed and it's all mm. right to be, you know, full of jealousy and full of rage and saying you're not crazy. This mm. is this is what this is what life is. And and especially the the figure of Taylor Swift is so important in that because she is just the squarest person on this on the face of the planet, <laughs> right? And and to stage her in this kind of like Visconti Italian melodrama kind of setting, I think shows to shows to young women that 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 uh, that their anger need not be something that only a sort of foreign kind of person has or something, right? That that you can be a totally regular young woman and still have these kind of emotional rages or something like that. Well, and, and also to take a story about that, like that you can relate to or that speaks to you and flip it, like you said, Max, because I, I didn't I, I didn't actually catch that because I'm not a lyrics guy, but <laughs> that that she's changing the role or changing that, what you think the story is going to be. I think that that's a really important thing for activists is like speak in a language that people understand, make it relatable, speak to know who your audience is, speak directly to them and then take that and move it, you know, and shift, shift where you're going with it. Mm-hmm. Next one. Should, Should we, we do the next, next one? one? Yeah, yeah, let's do the next one. Okay. So now we're, we're moving into a, uh, a, a run of sensitive white dudes. Um, so we've had our fun max i know i know and so but this is really what's 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 dominating the uh the hot 100 for the past several months at least so this is this is a man who whose appeal i do not really understand and uh so um we're gonna try to figure it out right now this is ed sheeran and the song is called thinking out loud when your legs don't work And I can't sweep you up I, was the, I hate this. 
I was not gonna make it easy. But 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 this <laughs> almost sounds like Billy Bragg. A little bit. Do you hear that? <laughs> like a little, little bit. Oh, that's a stretch. <laughs> it's not like How long is this? It's almost over, man. It's almost over. <laughs> Okay, I have to speak first because I like that song. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. to be in this Boo. room with the three of you just mocking it was it's, it has to be so gendered. And I can see why this song was number one in February around Valentine's Day when we're stuck in a cold, when we're just thinking about when we'll be released to, you know, have that spring fever of falling in love. That was everything that a woman wants to hear was in that song. Thank you very much. Well, and, okay. and, and so in preparation for coming here, I've now listened to that like six or seven times. And I, I think I've come around on it too, you know? I mean, I, and, and especially because, and maybe I'm biased, because uh, as at least Steve knows, because he actually married my wife and I, uh, I got married over the summer, and uh, it's really fucking hard to find a first dance song. And that's what that is. That's what that is. Uh, if you write a new first dance song, you're 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 golden. You're, gold. you're golden. Uh, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, oh my god, it's my eighth grade school slow dance song. I am full of so much anger and disgust. I'm like, I'm doing everything I can, like just to. I, I had to stretch during that. That is like what makes me leave a store. That's like. Oh, I just want to punch things. You know what I mean? But I tried to. It just. How long was that? That was almost was five, five minutes. minutes. Five minutes. Oh, yeah. God. Wow. It's so. Uh, like, I couldn't listen to any of the words. I don't know what he said. It, from the very beginning, it was just like, oh, no. And then I will get to something redeeming, but I have to vent here. Awful, right? Like, I don't believe that's genuine at all. That to me is like, what's the worst thing about pop music? It's like, let's make a first dance song, let's cash in. Like, and that, that I don't think that guy has a, ever felt anything, right? Like, he's never, life has never taken a on that guy. He doesn't know what pain is, right? Like, he's just some chump that's like, Ugh. okay, that said, that said. I tried to listen, and there's some there's with the music. It's a very relaxed feel, right? Like everything about it is relaxed and leisurely. And I could imagine that if you were a chump that wore <laughs> jeans that you bought at J.C. Penney with your cell phone on your belt, with a with a button-down shirt tucked in, short sleeves, you got an eight-dollar haircut, you drove a Camry or something. And you were, and you were in traffic and that was on and you'd be like oh yeah cool and that sometimes that's what people need yeah. right they need something kind of relaxing and leisurely that brings that back into their life yeah that's what I was thinking this is phony I mean this is artificial but I, I think that's why people like it and like I've started watching The Voice 
um, and American Idol a lot. And I don't like American Idol, but I love the voice. And and the thing about it is that it's about this sort of virtuosity of emptiness. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and no, insofar as that they're they're training these people to be professional musicians, and so they actually they move them to doing works which they are uncomfortable with or aren't part of their you know the the, the usual sort of stable and. I just want to, I don't know how we can make sense of it, but there is something just about, it's artificial, but it's okay. <laughs> you people are so cynical. <laughs> not even funny. <laughs> One, don't let the facts get in the way of the story, right? There's that. Um, Wait, what do you mean? Um, that even questioning the authenticity misses the point. Okay. Right. It's not about who's saying it. It's about that it's being said and you're hearing it. And so it's it's the words that people want to hear rather than whether or not that person who's saying it really means it. Oh. And and at the same time, also, I mean, it's it's on the on the in the spectrum of torch songs. I think I think this guy sounds more like he means it than a lot of people who are on The Voice or on American Idol. His voice has that little kind of crack to it that. That that means that he's feeling something, you know. So cultivated. That, that crack was engineered. But I'm totally susceptible to it, though, you know. But I want to follow up with what Pat said, and you know, because I think that as activists, we often get hung up in being authentic, which is like, this is how I feel. This is what I think about this. And really, what I heard you saying is, it's like, okay, that's fine, but there's a performance to be done, and there's a performance to speak in a language which people understand, even if. You know, it feels like nails scratching on a chalkboard. Um, and that doesn't mean we have to go that way all the time. And maybe there's some, you know, a little that way, a little back, and so on and so forth. But I think that point about, well, what does the audience want? We found love right where we are, right? That is the message, right? We want to know that love is there, that we don't have to work that hard for it, that I don't have to keep updating my OKCupid profile, that, you know, I will find it. It is available to me. It is right where I am. Um, Without working. That's the myth. That's the uh, drive that you want to believe in. Uh, And especially, you know, we know that all of this is orchestrated. I so see this as a song being released in the winter when we're you know, so at our loneliest, um, in terms of just not being able to go outside as much, uh, not having enough sun, uh, not being as social. Which which I think is interesting when you think about, because um, we're starting to get a picture of the top of the Billboard charts now, right? About what, what the sort of multiplicity of songs popular at that time were. And this is gaining popularity at exactly the same time as Uptown Funk, which has this whole different kind of kind of easy confidence, the, like, gotta kiss myself, I'm so pretty kind of thing, which is so at the other end of the spectrum than this, which is like, oh, God, I'm in my room, and it's, you know, it's the sixth episode of Daredevil, and I, I haven't eaten anything in days or something, you know, and, and, and that, that, that those two feelings can subsist in the popular consciousness at the same time is really interesting. And also, I just also love the power of music, and uh, Steve, your reaction to it, because I have reactions that strongly to other songs, right? And I think with music, unlike other forms of entertainment, it's, if it doesn't strike me or if I don't resonate with it, I come out harder uh, against trying to accept it than I do. Uh, like a movie, I can, you know, I just have way more tolerance uh, mm. than I do with music. Mm-hmm. So moving on uh, to a song that 
has actually been out for almost two years at this point, but only really uh, surged in the past few months or so. This is another Irishman, actually. This is Hosier. 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 With uh, Take Me to Church. Irish. I've heard this. It's good. It's like, whoa. This is like epic. Wait, this is gay? this is like a gay like love story? Oh, yeah! yeah. <laughs> what was in that box? Woo. Secrets. Secrets. Love letters. Whoa! Wow! Wow! That, that is not. Yeah, not what I expected at all. Yeah, I mean, and now I see why Pat doesn't look at the screen sometimes because it's it's a different song, not entirely different if you don't see the video. Yeah, and this was actually the only video I watched because I know this song and I have it on my playlist, one of my playlists. Uh, so I've listened to it so much, but now I'm actually going to be impacted by that um, uh, video because it was such a strong visual also uh, such a strong story well and i think that's what's kind of interesting is that kids most of them um probably today actually see as much as they actually hear and i think that it it, you know it makes us think about sort of how the visual always frames out the message itself i'm never going to listen to that song again knowing that that's actually what you know at least was the director's idea of what's happening in that song and especially in this case, I think it's an example of, of a case in which the visual actually determined the meaning of the song for a lot of people. I mean, if you just hear the song, it's sort of a kind of garden variety, dude, mixture of religiosity and sex kind of thing, right? Whereas accompanied with that visual, it, it, it becomes about homophobia in a way. And I think a lot of people, if you ask them, what's that Hosier song about? They'd say, oh, it's about homophobia, obviously. I started to catch it in the lyrics before that you see the two guys kiss in the video. Yeah, I think we could go directly to, and it's great that there's a, a top, you know, music video that deals so explicitly with one. It's a gay relationship. Like, how many years did Elton John have to say she in songs? <laughs> you know that we've we've finally gotten past that, and that also that there is a video that shows homophobia and and like in a in a the kind of terror that it is. But the third thing is that I think is less connected, but I'm starting to see it. I'm connecting it back to Taylor Swift here, is that there is a consequence to your everyday life, right? And a deep meaning to even just your relationship that that extends politically and has all this drama and power, which for most people is just not true. They want meaning in their lives. Yeah, and I think that's the key is they want meaning in their lives. We would actually, as horrific as this, essentially a scene out of Birth of a Nation um, was, which is it's a lynching scene. It means that your love means something. It means that it's heightened. It means mm-hmm. that it has this extreme importance. It's love in the time of a revolution. And I think that in some ways this is one of the crossover appeals of this is that it's not just playing to men who love men. It's playing to anybody who thinks of their love as forbidden and thinks of that someone's trying to keep them down and I should be able to express what I need to express. On to the next one? Yeah. All what right. do we got next? Next we have 
probably the world's worst horse's ass, Adam Levine. Oh! And Maroon 5. Uh, so this guy, I, I should have asked you the other ones because I don't really know what any of this means. But he's on TV, right? He's like he's on the Voice, TV the voice. host. Oh, yeah, he's oh, one yeah. of the hosts of the Voice. Yeah. Okay, and he was in this band. Mm-hmm. And, right. he, and, and what drove me crazy about the band is that visually they look like a punk rock band. Um, yeah, yeah, he's full got tattoos, tattoos and so on and so forth. Long hair. But on them, when so you long. listen to them, they're just a, he's a crooner. Mm-hmm. And he does some some good crooning in this one. This is called Sugar, and it goes like this. Great. Okay. He is good, though. He's got a good voice. Like, I mean, he, he, he is a pop singer. Mm-hmm. He doesn't try to disguise his smarminess either, I no. think. He's totally in command of it. That's a bunch of people being very, very excited to have Maroon 5 play at their wedding. Uh, should say a little bit about the premise of the video, I guess, because this is a podcast, right? That, yeah. Uh, the premise of the video is that Maroon 5 uh, goes out on, an, I'm guessing, a Saturday in Los Angeles and tries to surprise as many weddings as possible by setting up and playing for them. Go into the music, because like, the video is great PR for the band um, <laughs> and for Adam Levine. Uh, but the, the music... Great beat. I can dance to it. I like it. Right. Every time I've heard a Maroon Five song, I don't know what they are. I can't. You know, I can't name their hits. Moves like Jagger. Is that is that one? I don't know what that one is, but I know them when I hear them. And every time, it's like undeniably, it's a good song. It's got you know, it's like got a good feel. They figured it out, and uh, it kind of reminded me of some interview I heard with like a jazz pianist or drummer or something. And he had this theory. It, either it was about his songwriter or about music in general that music starts with dance, right? Like you want to move your body in a certain way. You have a heartbeat. You have um, ways that you walk, right? And a rhythm that you walk. And that music is just an extension or modification of those very human movements and parts of our body. And that song, like, you know, you've got this really basic beat and then the bass and the guitar, like, dun 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 you know and it just like brings you along and that that part i think is works so well in that song yeah i actually like the song um and it actually brought me back to the first song that we started uptown funk because both of them are just so well put together i mean they're just flawless and it made me think about the value of virtuosity and like how important it is to just even if I don't like that type of music, I can recognize that person is really good at what they do. Yeah. Uh, so for me, this is the kind of music that is, you know, like the snicker bars of, you know, music. So it's not <laughs> offensive. It's just catchy enough, but it doesn't leave you with anything. I actually started watching the video because there was nothing to the song without the video. Right? <laughs> so you kind of have to see it. It's like, oh, okay, it's the pe- seeing people having fun connects me. Oh, this should be a fun song. Otherwise, it's, it is too generic uh, without the visual for me to make that connection. I mean, yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's exactly right, that even the degree to which you guys find the song appealing has everything to do with the video. I think if you heard the song in isolation, you'd be like, this is vapor. This, this like almost doesn't even exist. Maybe so. 
But there, there's a place for that music. I'm looking at the top left corner in YouTube. It says one hour music with lyrics. And I'm imagining it's just that song over and over for an hour. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. people do that. They'll just put a song on repeat because they don't want to think and they kind of like it. And like this, I could see, like if I needed to concentrate and I had to listen to pop music, like say at work. <laughs> music you can listen to at work. <laughs> and, and tap your foot. I mean, yeah. it's sort of like, yeah, all right. Yeah, it I'm going, I'm going to the gym. Yeah. But it does not require your concentration. Right. right, exactly. No, because it's mostly chorus, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the repeating chorus over and over again. And all I could think about was, you know, the Archies did it better with Sugar Sugar. <laughs> Which is a great song. <laughs> well, I was listening to uh, an interview. This is just total coincidence with Brian Eno, music producer, <laughs> experimental musician, so on, composer. Maroon 5 fan. Yeah, probably, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Um, but it was on, and uh, he was, someone stopped it, and like, you got to listen to this. It's about pop music. And the thing he said, they, I guess they asked him in this interview, what makes pop music? Because it's so many different genres. You know, like you could have a country song that's pop music. What makes pop music? And his answer was, uh, like a level of finish and completion, but also familiarity, right? So, you, so when this kind of this is music is based on an uptown funk is based on music that was initially created maybe late '60s through the mid '70s, and when they were making it, and I forget how he put this, but like when you're so excited to do something new, it's like who cares how good we record it? Like let's just get it done. This is amazing, you know. And now with pop music, they're revisiting there. It's a a process of revisiting older things that are sort of familiar, but adding a level of finish to it all. And I think Adam Levine's sort of whole sort of stature is as this crooner, as this sort of um, brat pack um, or rat pack, rather, sort of uh, Frank Sinatra. And it's really sort of reminiscent of the 1950s. And there's a lot of these are sort of recycling musical forms and part of that has to do with pop's familiarity which is like I've heard this song before it was Sugar Sugar wasn't it I've heard this song James Brown did a song like this before and I think that it's something for us to think about with activism as well which is like how do we actually do these two things simultaneously which is draw on traditions of the past that people are comfortable with yet also you know give them that polish give them the sort of ideal type of that form so people can really respect the virtuosity of what we do and something that we haven't touched on yet in this conversation is around the racialization of music and Mm -hmm. what really got me with this video is that they were going to all these different you know uh uh, racial and ethnic groups who really (laughs) an all asian wedding is going to be going crazy about maroon five i i just don't see that happening yet that is a myth that they tried to make you believe and Actually, this could be a question for Max uh, in terms of when a song gets as popular as these top five, do they have to, you know, is it enough? Do we still have enough of an all white audience that can support them to be in the top five? Or do they really have to uh, be able to permeate into other racial and ethnic groups to get to that kind of popularity? I think it's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to say, and, and I think it depends upon uh, which kind of music consumption you're talking about, I think. If you're talking about the album chart, um, like album sales, for example, 
you know, most of most of the things that top that chart are things like now that's what I call music, the the <laughs> compilations that that mm. bring together all of the singles, for example, or or that's where you see a lot of you know you'll see that uh, for instance this week a an eighteen year old Vine sensation just sold you know sixty four thousand albums and is number one this week. And you're like, who the hell is this guy? So when it comes to buying physical albums, I think there's enough of the kind of sustained white audience to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely true. But in terms of the Hot 100, no, absolutely not. Like, if you appealed only to white people, it would just, it would, your song would not go anywhere, I don't think, you know? Hmm. What do we do with this in terms of activism? We've kind of deconstructed these things as they make sense as pop culture and as pop music. But what this whole podcast is about is creating tools that are going to be useful, tools for activists who want to be more creative in their work or for cultural creators who want to be more um, effective in their work. And so how can we use some of these things we've been talking about to make us uh, better world changers? I think a really key one is going back to that Eno thing of familiarity and polish. And I think what happens with pop music that we wouldn't want to emulate is that the familiarity... And the polish combined somehow turns into a watered down like Maroon 5 you can listen to at work and you can't listen to James Brown at work. It just they're the you <laughs> know, what I mean? it's like, <laughs> yeah, Maroon 5 has just enough, you know, like, that you can taste it, but it's mostly water where uh, James Brown, the flavor might be a little too strong if you work in a cubicle farm. So, so that's what happens with pop music. But I think what the way it could be used in activism is you draw on familiarity, but you bring a level of professionalism and polish to it that um, people can know to respect the virtuosity you were talking about. One example that is a total pet peeve of mine is signs at protests. Mm-hmm. Like people get cardboard and a Sharpie and like just redraw the same letter over and over again. So it looks like it was scratched on there. And, uh, you know, I, I did a project with a sign painter once we showed up at Occupy Boston and he was way better than me. But I was like, we took all of their signs and repainted them and made them look nice and colorful. And everyone loved it. You know, like people in Occupy and people that came to it like, oh, these look great, you know. And there's like a, because they they looked familiar and they also had a level of uh, finish that that kind of commanded respect and attention. Yeah, and this is something which Grand Fury and Act Up did brilliantly, is mm-hmm. they really actually used the polished aesthetics of uh, popular culture, advertising culture, and, you know, just their signs were beautiful, and they were easy to read, and they resonated with advertising culture, but then they also queered advertising culture. They would flip the meanings up mm-hmm. on top of their heads, and so they both drew upon that polish and that familiarity, but then turned it around, quite literally with a pink triangle, turning it on its head and turning it from a symbol of oppression to a symbol of power. But don't you think that we do that with music? I think in terms of progressives and music, that's been the area where we've been able to uh, co-opt in a way. It becomes, you know, quite different when you're talking about the top five songs and the top. But within the top hundred, you have progressive message songs coming. Uh, and so we do do that. And I think for me, the question is, how do we push beyond that and not just rely on what we're able to do or just playing the songs over and over again that speak to us so directly and try to see, okay, how do you expand the message out beyond just the uh, hit you over the head? You know, there's no subtlety to the message, but 
uh, that we give people more room. Because again, going back to the Thinking Out Loud song, I think what struck me was there was a, a level of loneliness to that uh, song, but it wasn't portrayed that way. And it was, you know, it was just people don't want to hear that you know that we have problems. <laughs> Just like I know, I have problems. <laughs> I'm dealing with them all the time. I don't need you to reiterate that for me. But give me where's that level of hope? Where's that uh, space where you're giving me space to feel good? I think also to to also go back to um, go back to the point about uh, the repainting of the signs as well, mm-hmm. right? I think a lot of a lot of issues, especially when you're talking about coming to activist circles. A lot of it is informed by this kind of punk rock or DIY sensibility, which I think people bring to activist circles with with a very sort of sincere enthusiasm about the political implications of that, which is that we're going to show you something that you can do. But for a lot of people, low fidelity aesthetics just looks like you know, it doesn't look like I can do it. It just looks like somebody didn't take the time to do this well enough. Right, exactly. Because, we, you know, we come, Max and I come out of this sort of DIY punk rock culture that you know, part of me when she was saying, well, we have to make nice signs. I'm like, no, our signs should look like Sharpies yeah. because the people like Sharpies. Yeah. But it's like, come on, get a brush, like draw it out, get a ruler. Come on. Exactly. And for people outside of that subculture, it just means you didn't care. Mm-hmm. When I was younger and I decided I wanted to paint on walls that did not belong to me, I never did it uh, just straight freehand with spray paint because I knew that that would look like graffiti. And so I took the time to like letter it and uh, paint it real quickly with a brush. But it, I was copying those advertising aesthetics. Why am I saying this? when people would see it, they would not read it as graffiti. And I could kind of confuse their interpretation of what this writing on the wall was about, who did it, why they did it, and what it meant. And I think a lot of times a DIY aesthetic automatically gets interpreted, or there's a bunch of baggage that comes with it. One, that this is sort of punk rock, scrappy, whatever, or this is activist. And if you can delay that interpretation, you get a chance to add more meaning. And picking up on that and also linking it to the Hoosier um, Take Me to Church video, I think we also forget at times how scary it is for people outside to see a group of people moving in unison. And it doesn't Uh. matter what they're, right? Because groups of people are the clan. Groups of people are, you know, going to beat up gay people. Groups of people are fighting against, you know, corporate you know, takeover. Groups of people are fighting for liberation, right? It's, uh, it's the angry we, mob. Right? We yeah. don't own groups of people. And so by creating signs which are uh, immediately readable because we're there, you know, in this sort of uh, virtuosity aesthetic is people can identify and signify who you are immediately and say, oh, yeah, okay, that part's a little scary, but I get what their message is, and I also see who they are. It goes back to that idea of genre, which is I I understand them. One of the reasons why pop music works is because it's never threatening. We understand it. It Mm. already includes it. We've heard it. We've seen it before. And this, of course, is hard when we're talking about revolution, when we're talking about that we actually want to overturn the way that people think and understand about the world. But first, got to get them to listen to us, and then we can queer I think as well, another thing to, to pick up on, I mean, I, I'm sort of out of my depth in a way, because I, I, I sort of let the political organizing train 
go by me a long time ago and got into bands and that kind of thing. But I think I want to go back to the, uh, I said it already, but the I Gotta Kiss Myself I'm So Pretty moment from the mm-hmm. Uptown Funk song. The kind of easy confidence of that mm-hmm. is such a, a wonderful anecdote to... Uh, defeatist cynicism that one often gets in mm-hmm. in, 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 a, in a lot of political circles, especially I mean, there's just a, a kind of a, a flair to that gesture that is so so powerful and vibrant and important. I think. Yeah, and since the the Godfather's name has been evoked, I mm-hmm. mean, there's that moment that James Brown does, "I'm black and I'm proud," mm-hmm. which just just lines up with the Black Power movement, which is just this moment of like, "Well, I'm black and I'm proud," and it just. It moves it from we are defeated to, no, look at us. We're cocky. We own this place. And you want to join them. All all these songs don't have like a consistent volume. A a lot of them, especially more lately, have this sort of dropout point. Like Uptown Funk had it. The Taylor Swift song had it. The horrible ballad thing didn't have it. But the other ones did. And there's quiet parts and loud parts. And then there's this dropout part and it comes back. And the dynamics of a lot of actions are usually like full volume the whole way through, you know, or like we want it to be the same level of intensity, but that contrast is really important. And that could be something we could bring into it as well. So my suggestion for what activists could do, I think listen to five pop songs before you go to your next meeting. Listen to five pop songs before you go to your next demonstration. You will be in a better mood. (laughs) Yes. All right. So I got one more. Max, I want to thank you for coming and being our guest and leading us through a tour of this horrible music. Thank you, Max. Thank you, guys. It was a ton of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, No, actually, we learned it wasn't wasn't all bad. I I thought this would be... make me far more angry than it did although we didn't avoid it entirely well, I'm glad we made at least one Ed Sheeran fan though I think that's the important thing <laughs> I'm going to download that song I won't pay for it but I will <laughs> so for those of you that are listening if you would like to reach us with ideas for your pop culture salvage expedition something you'd like to see us get out there and do you can contact us on the artisticactivism.org website or through twitter at artsactivism.org We are arts activism at Twitter. Um, Otherwise, we will see you in a few weeks with a new adventure and a new salvage expedition. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions. Just wanted to give you a quick announcement. We are working on our next episode, which will be about comedy. We have a special guest from Spain, Leonidas Martin. He's an expert practitioner in creative activism, and so you you can look forward to that. Another thing is we've got some great episodes in the works. I don't want to give everything away, but I will say the words Manny Petty and Minecraft. We've got those coming up. Those are some great suggestions we've gotten from listeners like you. Also, if you have any suggestions for possible guests, we'd love to hear it. Last thing, if you could, uh, if you enjoy the show, please tell friends about it. You can rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We've gotten some nice feedback from that recently, and we really appreciate that. Also, tell a friend, tweet it out to your, your folks on Twitter and social networks, and that is helpful to us, too, to help reach other listeners who may be interested in the things that we're talking about. If you like it, they might like it, too. So thanks for that, and we'll see you next time.
cheese Look at the birds up in the sky Ain't they free? Look at the fishes in the deep blue sea And then won't you please Tell me what the big guys do What they want to They can lost to control Yeah I'm a man you better Set me free Someone up there better Stand up for me yeah. Oh, oh yeah.